listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's Season 4, Episode 1, Ohio versus Watergate. Super excited to be back. We're going to keep the same schedule as the last couple years, releasing episodes every other Sunday. And today our guests are John Dean, former White House counsel under President Nixon, the man at the center of the biggest you know, political scandal of the 20th century in America, Watergate. And John was so cool to, to sit down with us when he was uh, coming through Ohio doing a seminar with our other guest, Jim Robinell, uh, author and lawyer up in Cleveland. A friend of the show was an incredible guest on one of my favorite episodes we did last season called Ohio vs. Black Power on his book Ballots and Bullets uh, about Mayor Carl Stoke, one of my favorites. But again, Jim hooked it up with, with to bring John down to Columbus. You see John Dean all over the place on TVs, on CNN all the time, just testified before the House Judiciary Committee about Watergate and the Mueller report uh, and those similarities. And that's one of the things we'll get into today is you know our approach for this show is going to be not so much just asking John exactly what uh, you know happened during Watergate, but really trying to use history as a guide, which has always been one of our favorite things to do on this show. Our beer for the episode is one we've had before. We always drink an Ohio beer while we're recording, and today we are drinking the Truth, uh, the Truth IPA from Rheingeist Brewing down in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, go to rheingeist.com. Go see their Incredible tap room and brew house down in, in over the Rhine in Cincinnati. Uh, the Truth is one of their flagship beers. It's been around for years. Uh, it's kind of a West Coast IPA, hoppy for sure, but some some fruit and you know kind of citrus aromas and taste. Seven point two percent on that Truth IPA, so be careful with that one. But that's really what John Dean did in this situation. After being involved in the cover up, after being really at the center of the cover up inside the Nixon White House. He decided finally it all had to end, and he told the truth to Congress. And really, it, his truth, John Dean's testimony, which all proved to be true, brought down a president, the only president to ever resign, Richard Nixon, in August of 1974. But without further ado, it's time we get to the, the man of the hour, John Dean, and our guest, Jim Robinall. We're going to talk about Watergate. Uh, we're going to talk about the similarities between the Nixon White House, and what's going on today with the Mueller report investigation, and really how a third-rate burglary of the, of the Democratic National Committee brought down a president, and brought down by the testimony and the character of our guest today, John Dean. It's episode one, Ohio versus Watergate. But there was a cancer growing on the presidency. And if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. The central question at this point is simply put, what did the president know and when did he know it? 
I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. And it's quite striking and startling to me that history is repeating itself. Amazon Studios last week announced that they're going to do a, a movie, a biopic on John Dean, Nixon's lawyer, and Chris Pine, uh, you might know from Wonder Woman, from all the Star Trek movies as Captain Kirk, uh, will be playing John Dean. I'm really looking forward to this as, as they move into production. Um, so be on the lookout for that. But John, you know, we had a, a chance to sit down and interview him for, gosh, 45 minutes, almost an hour, so gracious of his time. But we didn't want to just sit there and ask him, well, what happened in Watergate? It's the same interview he's always done. Um, and contractually with the movie, there's some things he just can't talk about. So we really wanted to not just talk about just Watergate, but also talk about what's going on and how we can use the lessons of Watergate to navigate the situation we have now with Russiagate and the Trump administration and that investigation. You know, everyone says we're in uncharted territory with Trump on this and that. And a lot of times it's just not true. It's hyperbole. And that's not to say Trump, you know, I'm not saying Trump will be impeached. I'm not saying that at all. But the goal of this show is to give our listeners a historical guide to the present. Um, And those are our best episodes when we can do that. So we're going to talk to the man that was there. We're going to talk to him, uh, to the guy who just testified in front of the House Judiciary Committee. John Dean, who's a former Republican, now a, a, describes himself as an independent um, and, you know, John is a uh, outspoken critic of the president, as many are. Um, but we want to look at the historical lessons and what we can learn and what we can use in, in this current investigation. Because I, I can promise you it's going to continue. Uh, the investigation into, into this Trump-Russia situation is not going to go away. Um, and, you know, Watergate took a couple of years itself. It took over two years to fully unravel and the president resigning. Uh, and again, not to say that's what will happen here, but these things do take time. One thing you might be wondering is that's all well and good, Alex, but what, is, what does Watergate have to do with Ohio? Well, John Dean, our guest today, grew up here in Ohio. We talked to John about uh, being born in Akron and growing up a Buckeye. My father worked at Firestone 18 years before I was born. <laughs> After that, uh, not so much. Yeah. Uh, I grew up, as far as Ohio goes, in Marion, Ohio, the home of Warren G. Harding, just down the block from his home. John Dean and I have something in common as well. We both are graduates from the great little liberal arts college up in Northeast Ohio, the College of Worcester. Graduated a few years apart, uh, but John's also a fighting Scot, and we talked to him about about attending Worcester, uh, and really how he got interested in, in politics is he leaves Worcester to go to D.C., um, and comes back to finish. I went to prep school, yes, I did, in Virginia. And I, I did end up in Ohio again in my uh, sophomore year at the College of Worcester. Did a semester, then decided to go do a Washington semester, uh, and then came back and finished my final year at Worcester. Like we said, John grew up in Marion, uh, the hometown of, of Warren Harding. Something else John and I have in common, we're both uh, of the belief that Warren Harding gets a bad rap as the president. And those ratings, he's always in the bottom five, um, the last Ohio president. John wrote a book in the early 2000s uh, for Arthur Schlesinger's presidential series about about uh, Warren Harding. 
He's you know defended him in the past, continues to do so. But it's through John's scholarship on Warren Harding that he met our second guest, Jim Robinall, author and lawyer from Cleveland, Ohio. Jim is the author of The Harding Affair, an incredible book uh, about Harding's affair with Carrie Phillips and how she becomes a spy in, during World War One. Uh, a really interesting look at, at Warren Harding's history. Um, but we talked with Jim just about how they met. Now they tour the country together, putting on continuing legal education seminars uh, for lawyers on ethics. Um, but it was through Warren Harding that they originally met. Back in 2004, Dick Cheney and John Edwards uh, debated at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. And I was asked to do a program on Ohio and its presidents. John had recently written a book for Arthur Schlesinger Jr. on Warren Harding. So um, I invited him to come. And at the time, he was out uh, public doing running around the world, actually, with his book called Worse Than Watergate. He, he was in Australia. But his publicist got a hold of him. And to my surprise, he said, sure, I'll come uh, to participate, uh, being an old Buckeye. And he did. And that's how we met. So we first met over Warren Harding. It had nothing to do with Watergate. And we didn't work on Watergate matters. That's 2004 until really the end of 2010. John graduates from Georgetown Law School. And he goes and becomes the, the chief counsel of the, the uh, House of Representatives of the Judiciary Committee, that same committee that he testified before this summer. He works his way into the Attorney General's office under Nixon's AG, John Mitchell, and eventually uh, joins the White House as Nixon's White House counsel. Joins in 1970, incredibly young. John Dean gets his dream job and how quickly it turns into a nightmare after just you know first year, year and a half, the Watergate scandal breaks. First of all, John becomes White House counsel in 1970. He's you know in his early 30s, uh, 30, 31. Uh, and he's suddenly in this role that has all these responsibilities. And um, in 1972, uh, the, the uh, campaign to reelect Richard Nixon, is beginning to put together all of their programs. And um, over at the Committee to Reelect the President, Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunter putting together this group that's going to do intelligence on uh, their opponents. And so they, they break into the Watergate, into the Democratic National Headquarters. At the end of May, they install some bugs. They install them in the wrong places. And then they undertake a second operation to go back in in, in, in the middle of June. And at that point uh, is when they get arrested. John is halfway around the world. Um, he's, he was in the Philippines giving a speech and then on his way back. And he is greeted with this disaster when he gets back into the country and then comes back to Washington and uh, begins to uh, find out what really happened. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. Neither. The president, obviously, or anybody in the White House or anybody in authority in any of the committees working for the re-election of the president have any responsibility for it. June 17, 1972. The Watergate break-in. It happens, it's 
five men are arrested. They're in the Watergate Hotel, which has also got a, a business complex to it, and they're replacing bugs that they'd already put in before. They're eavesdropping on the Democratic National Committee headquarters. The police see a door cracked, uh, really tape, a lock taped shut, and they bust them. They're all arrested. They've all got crisp $100 bills in their pockets. One of the men, James McCord, has been working security for the committee to reelect the president and, and the Republican Party. There's an address book that's found that has a number in it that just says White House, and they call it, and it's to Howard Hunt's office. He's working with the committee to reelect the president, uh, which goes by the apropos acronym CREEP. This has the potential to be a huge story. Nixon's running for re-election that fall. He's running against George McGovern. Um, and there and there's people from the, his party breaking into the opponent's party with listening devices over it. And the newspapers are all over it. And the FBI's all over it. John Dean's in Manila, and he gets a call. And he comes back. You know, he said his biggest mistake, first mistake, was not even even coming back from, from Manila in San Francisco when he lands. He meets off-site with Gordon Liddy. He's kind of in charge of this operation for the committee to re-elect the president. He doesn't even meet with him in the executive office building. He, he meets with him on the street. And Liddy confesses everything. He says, it was my, you know, it's my idea. We screwed it up. There's other operations. He tells him about breaking into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers a year before. It's not their first operation. And he even tells Dean, you know, I think one of the craziest things, Liddy, he was, he was a nut. Um, he says, you know, look, if, if the White House wants to take me out, tell me what street corner to be on and what time I'll be there. Just don't do it at my house. I've got a family. You know, and John, you know, this guy thinks he's going to be killed for screwing this up. Um, and John, you know, realizes that, man, this is really bad. It's a super big mess. He's already knee deep at this point. So other people are confessing to him as well. These burglars need money. They're arrested, but they haven't spilled the beans. And Liddy says they won't. As long as they get paid, their families, their attorney's fees. And that's where the cover-up begins. You know, There's checks that are found um, that the FBI is following through on that, that have a link to these men. There's White House connections. And Dean's got to get in front of it. The president's got to get in front of it because the FBI is all over it. Is when do you, as a lawyer, begin to cross that line? And it's very uh, vague, you know, and it's not a real clear, bright line, obstruction, and when he first starts this, he's involved in helping out to kind of keep everything in line. And they, when they're giving money to these guys for the defense fund, right. there are plenty of open and obvious defense funds that are perfectly legal. And so it, the light really doesn't go on until some months later when he's given a recording of Howard Hunt demanding money saying, if we don't get this money, we're uh, from, gonna, Chuck from Chuck Colson, yeah. we're going to blow. So it's this... This realization is not absolutely, you know, right, stark, and in front of you. And uh, sometimes lawyers suddenly wake up and find out, oh, my goodness, I'm on the other side of the line. And that kind of happened here. Nixon finally gives a press conference on Watergate in August, a couple months after the break-in. And he's being asked out in California, the Western White House, where he spent a lot of his time. He says, well, look, and even my own White House counsel, John Dean, has done an internal investigation. None of these people are associated with us. Um, and the press, you know, Dean sees this this press conference nearly falls off his chair. This so-called Dean report. The problem with this so-called Dean report is that there is no Dean report. John had never heard of it. He'd never written it. 
August 29, 1972, Richard Nixon is out in California and he holds a press conference and he's asked questions about, you know, are you going to appoint a special prosecutor? And he said, well, why would I do that? The FBI is looking into it. Their congressional committee is looking into it. And my White House counsel, John Dean, has done an investigation and determined that no one in the White House is involved in this. John is watching that press conference from a hotel room, and it's the first that he hears of his so-called investigation. And what we point out uh, in our current CLE about the Mueller report is one of the articles of impeachment passed by the House in 74 um, is Article 1, it's obstruction of justice, and one of the instances is Nixon making false statements that there are thorough investigations under underway. That's considered obstruction and an impeachable offense uh, to this Congress that wrote that article. We must maintain the integrity of the White House, and that integrity must be real, not transparent. There can be no whitewash at the White House. In November of 72, Nixon trounces George McGovern, a landslide historic victory. Watergate seems to slip out of the headlines a little bit. You know, I always thought it just started and it never ended. Um, but it, there's a period of time there where it looks like they might just get away with this. You know, maybe they'll cover it up. But this whole time, John Dean's in the background. He's helping uh, coordinate payments. He's helping, you know, he's coaching Jeb Magruder on, on you know, his grand jury testimony and, and how they try and throw off the investigators in, in the prosecution of these, of, uh, of the five burglars and other people associated with it, uh, Liddy and Hunt. Um the whole time he's trying to keep everything from falling apart, all these loose ends, you know, that could, that he's trying to keep him from hanging everybody, including himself. I always wonder about just how stressed he had to be. Um, you know, how do you deal with it? And, you know, some of these other interviews that he's done in his book, he talks about, well, one of the ways I handled it was with alcohol with, and I think scotch was his drink. Um, but in 1973, the sentencing for these burglars is coming up. The money's drying up. Um, and things are starting to spin out of control. What was being done at the White House was these guys were taking the money and they were, they believed they were agreeing not to talk. And that's what Howard Hunt uh, threatened that if he didn't keep getting this money, um, he was going to blow it up. So he clearly was believing that he was getting paid for silence. That's when John, the light first goes on and he starts looking at the law books and says, oh my. I'd actually tried to leave the White House long before Watergate. I tried to leave in September of 71 and uh, went, in to, went in to see Haldeman and tell him I was leaving. And he said, no, you're not. Uh, you owe it to us to stay through the election. The job offers I had not solicited, but I had, uh, both counted on me having a good relationship with the Nixon administration. So he knew exactly what he was doing. He was shooting down the job opportunities that had been offered me because he wanted me to stay. I've often thought, I'm sure he didn't forget that episode <laughs> and that he probably wished later, well, why didn't I let him go? <laughs> Charles Colson, who's kind of known as Nixon's hatchet man, uh, special counsel of the president, he storms into Dean's office and plays him a call he recorded 
with Howard Hunt saying, you know, listen to all this is, you know, I'm not implicated and all, and all this stuff. But Dean hears something else. And here's something that, you know, all this is going to crumble. Hunt's demanding money. He's saying that it's not happening fast enough, that he's going to have to, you know, reconsider his options. And Dean starts reading the criminal law books. And he sees, you know, the obstruction of justice statute. He realizes that the White House and him, they need a good criminal attorney. It's, you know, only in 1973 that Dean even starts really meeting with the president. Uh, instead of just John Ehrlichman or or H.R. You know, Haldeman, he starts meeting with the president and those guys, sometimes with the president by himself. You know, Robinault and, and Jim and, and, and John Dean started a, a seminar they toured the country with called 37 Conversations, where they look back at these conversations he had with the president and where he went wrong ethically on things he could have done differently to, to teach lawyers about ethical concerns. Um, but in February and March, more and more, John Dean's getting further and further involved in the cover-up. He realizes he needs to get out. He's becoming the centerpiece, maybe even the fall guy for Watergate. And he needs to make sure the president understands just how serious it is. That John really is not dealing with Nixon until February, March of 73. And during that time, he grows to understand who Nixon really is and then and then just sees there's no there's no good end to this. We got to just blow it up and stop it. And I've got to cooperate with authorities. So Prior to that time, he is pretty far down the chain, dealing with people like Haldeman and Ehrlichman. And, you know, um, as we say in our course, the light really doesn't go on until after the election. So it's not really till that February, March time period that, that he begins to deal directly with Nixon on a regular basis and finally meets him and who he is. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes. But in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. The media scrutiny the congressional investigations, the criminal investigations, they're all heating up in March of 1973. John Dean decides to sit down with the president. He's got a 10 a.m. meeting. He's going to lay it all out for the president. It's a famous meeting uh, where he tells him there's a cancer on the presidency. We asked Jim and John you know, about that meeting and, and John's ultimate firing. And we also played for you a portion of that actual meeting. It was recorded. Well, the one that's the most famous is March 21, 1973, where he goes in and says there's a cancer growing on your presidency. And um, that is just clearly a remarkable, a remarkable tape in every sense of the word. It had a lot to do with moving Nixon towards impeachment once it was uncovered and people started to listen to it, like Leon Jaworski, who was the replacement um, for Archibald Cox after he was fired. He wasn't so sure Nixon should be impeached until he and removed from office until he heard that tape that one changes you know a lot of minds in this so that's that's the single most important tape I still think to me though one of the most interesting tapes is a couple weeks later after John has broken and has told the president and everybody that he's got his own lawyer and that he's you know cooperating um, he goes in to see Nixon 
and Nixon tries to get him to resign. And there's this very prophetic statement by John where he says, when history is written, and he's talking to the President of the United States, when history is written, it will show that I blew this up. You know, I'm the one who got in and did this. And it was very prophetic. I mean, it's really right on, but it's also this 34-year-old 34, 34 lawyer um, speaking to the leader of the Western world. And it's just, to me, it's a remarkable moment in history. It, it wasn't a boast in the context of the conversation. Right. It was a statement of fact. Right. He was trying to put pieces together. How did it all fall apart? There's no doubt about the seriousness of the problem we've got. We have a cancer within close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. It's compounding. It grows geometrically now because it compounds itself. Uh, that'll be clear as I explain, you know, some of the details uh, of why it is. And it basically is because, one, we're being blackmailed. Two, uh, people are going to start perjuring themselves very quickly that have not had to perjure themselves to protect other people and the like. And that is just, and there's no assurance that that won't bust. John Dean is fired in April 73. And he starts working with the prosecutors and he's going to testify in front of Congress about what he knows about Watergate. And this testimony is just huge. Every channel, every story. We talked to Jim just real quick about just how important this testimony was and how big of a news story it really became when John goes to Capitol Hill to tell the truth about Watergate. He leaves in at the end of April. He's got his own lawyer. And then there's this negotiation with the Senate to get him to come testify, uh, which is actually put off a week because of Brezhnev coming to the United States. Um, but he then is on during um, the week of around June 25th. No soap operas on. Right? No soap opera. Everything is John Dean, every station. And John Lennon and Yoko Ono came, Yoko ono came from New York City to sit and watch him testify. And there's pictures of it. If you go online, you can find it. Um, so I, it, I didn't know that until Jim found those. Anyway, that, that week, everything is John Dean all the time. And that also is the beginning of, of PBS. McNeil, Lair, those guys, sure. you know, they would, they would replay the stuff at night uh, for people who had been working all day. And that was really their beginning. So there's a lot that came out of that testimony beyond just the, the devastating effect that it had on, the, on Richard Nixon. What I had hoped to do in this conversation was to have the president tell me we had to end the matter now. Accordingly, I gave considerable thought to how I would present this situation to the president and try to make as dramatic a presentation as I could to tell him how serious I thought the situation was that the cover-up continue. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency and if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. I also told him that it was important that this cancer be removed immediately because it was growing more deadly every day. I then gave him what I told him would be a broad overview of the situation, and I would come back and fill in details and answer any questions he might have about the matter. I concluded by saying that this is going to take continued perjury and continued support of these individuals for, to perpetuate the cover-up, and I did not believe it was possible to so continue it. Rather, I thought it was time for surgery of the cancer itself, and that all of those involved must stand up and account for themselves, and that the president himself get out in front of this matter. I told the president that I did not believe 
that all seven defendants would maintain their silence forever. In fact, I thought that one or more would very likely break rank. After I finished, I realized I had not really made the president understand. We asked John what it must have felt like to have you know, half the country not believe you. And he goes to testify, and he testifies an entire week. But what does it feel like when an entire nation, you know, half of, half of an entire nation, doesn't believe a word you're saying, thinks you're a liar? And also John mentions to the prosecutors the possibility of a taping system within the White House, within the Oval Office. And if it's true, how it could blow this case wide open. You know, I really wasn't terribly concerned about that. I knew it was my word against Nixon, his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, his top domestic advisor, John Ehrlichman, his hatchet man, Chuck Colson, uh, everybody, and I, his former attorney general, John Mitchell. And the way Sam Dash set up the hearings, Sam being the chief counsel of the committee, he got preliminary witnesses in to build a foundation, and then he put me in uh, on top of a lot of that information which corroborated uh, my testimony. Sam and I had talked for weeks before I appeared uh, off the record and actually unbeknownst to other members of the committee, only Sam uh, Irvin, the chairman, was aware. And so he structured it in that way that I would uh, top off the charges, if you will, and leave it to the others then to try to refute them. And they didn't quite manage that. Uh, I found the polling just kind of interesting. The, the, the group that uh, had polled the strongest belief in my testimony was African Americans, uh, which was very high, uh, way over Nixon and the others. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, the fact that Nixon was calling me a liar didn't trouble me. I had testified during the, the, uh, my appearance that I believed that one or more of my conversations had been recorded. I was sure about one because Nixon had said as much. Uh, and I said, get those tapes. And so that really was what it became after they did discover the recordings uh, was a, uh, uh, you know, was I telling the truth or not? Because they focused on my testimony, that became the probable cause to subpoena uh, the tapes by the prosecutor. And, uh, you know, I, I, there are some studies that apparently, I've looked at one of them that compares my conversations that were recorded with my testimony. There's one problem with it. The guy who does it only has access to like nine tapes like I did initially. But when you take all the tapes, as I later did when I did the Nixon defense, uh, when you take all 30-plus conversations, uh, it's pretty much on, right on the mark. It, the, what I found out that human memory does not do is timestamp well. Yeah. And things conflate, and, they, and dates are difficult to sort out. Uh, I got the gist of the conversations uh, on most days right, but as I say, uh, I conflated them. Uh, so the human memory is very fallible. But it, I, if anything, I under-testified knowingly because I wanted to be very careful. 
and memory plays tricks. I knew that. I told the president about the fact that there were money demands being made by the seven convicted defendants and that the sentencing of these individuals was not far off. It was during this conversation that Haldeman came into the office. After this brief interruption by Haldeman's coming in, but while he was still there, I told the president about the fact that there was no money to pay these individuals to meet their demands. He asked me how much it would cost. I told him I could only make an estimate that it might be as high as a million dollars or more. He told me that that was no problem. He also looked over at Haldeman and repeated the same statement. The conversation then turned back to a question from the president regarding the money that was being paid the defendants. He asked me how this was done. I told him I didn't know much about it other than the fact that the money was laundered so it could not be traced, and then there were secret deliveries. Watergate has a lasting influence on a couple of different areas. John says it doesn't have as lasting an impact on, on other areas as it should have, things like campaign finance reform um, and other issues that, that were addressed in the fallout following the scandal. But one of the main things that John's testimony does is it, it opens the eyes of the American Bar Association and others to, to ethics training for lawyers, something that I go through on, you know, on an annual basis. Uh, and these CLEs that, that John and Jim tour the country giving give you credit hours towards those continuing legal education. I got to do 24 hours, I think, every two years. We play here the testimony that John gave and just how there were so many lawyers involved in Watergate that it really ultimately changed the way that American attorneys uh, have to practice law and have to really to keep their certification, especially in ethics requirement. So that's one of the one impact of Watergate has been on the practice of law. And little did I know that very specific testimony I gave in responding to questions from the late Senator Herman Talmadge from Georgia, where he asked me about an exhibit uh, that I had entered into the records. And I had put an asterisk just out of my own uh, observation of the list as to who was involved in what we called the pre-Watergate, which was before the arrests at the Watergate, and then the post. Uh, and I had all these asterisks going down the page, and uh, Talmadge wanted to know what those meant. And he called them stars. Right. Uh, and I said, uh, Senator, the, it was just a, my reaction uh, of, my God, how could so many lawyers have gotten in these problems? because they 
also spelled out, you know, criminal liability. And this rang a bell with the American Bar Association. And since then, uh, n a number of people involved not only in the initial effort, but in the later efforts, have told me that testimony had a huge impact. They decided to rewrite then a re recent edition of their model code of professional ethics. There's a state, multi-state bar examination on ethics. There are continuing legal education requirements in most states. Not every state, but most states. I'd say an overwhelming majority of the states. Few jurisdictions don't, uh, but they're rare. And it's affected the practice of law. No question, lawyers are reminded constantly of their ethical responsibility. John mentions offhand that there were some conversations he thought might have been taped. He tells the investigators, and, and it leads him down this road to discover that there is a taping system in the Oval Office, in the other, uh, other rooms where Nixon might have had meetings. These tapes could expose everything, whether Nixon's innocent, whether he's guilty, what he knew and when he knew it. We talked to Jim just about the importance of the taping system and how it changes the Watergate scandal and really leads to the beginning of the end for President Nixon. We did a, we did a, a program that is online with C-SPAN um, where I noticed that there was no archival record of the discovery process of the tapes. Uh, nobody really had made an account of it, so I was told Jim about it, and I said, uh, I've got a law school that'll put on a, a conference on this, and we'll invite all of the key players, uh, being uh, Scott Armstrong of the Senate Watergate Committee, Doug Sanders was, de was, was deceased. He was the minority member who was there when Alex Butterfield, the former deputy White House chief of staff, who had installed the system, he was still very much alive, and others. We went to uh, Chapman College, the law school, in Orange, California, and the whole thing was recorded. It was a great session. So we have, we have really a good archival record of how that unfolded. And that's it, on C-SPAN? Yeah, that's on C-SPAN, and, and Scott Armstrong said that he said to Butterfield, now John Dean says that he's recorded, and is that possible in this instance and Butterfield said I'm sorry you asked that question uh, yes it's it's likely he was recorded all the conversations were recorded and that was the bombshell moment but it was his throwaway testimony that he put that in before the Senate that led to that so it's extraordinary Mr. Butterfield are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President I was aware of listening devices Yes, sir. When were those devices placed in the Oval Office? Approximately the summer of 1970. Are you aware of any devices that were installed in the Executive Office Building Office of the President? Yes, sir, at that time. This is a rather remarkable letter about the tapes. If you notice, the President says he's heard the tapes, or some of them, and they sustain his position. But he says he's not going to let anybody else hear them for fear they might draw a different conclusion. <laughs> the next phase of Watergate, after basically everything is in those tapes, the next phase is that Nixon doesn't want to give them over, saying they're his property, and they file suit, and it goes to court. Uh, and this is just a huge battle. Everybody wants to hear these tapes. 
John Dean obviously doesn't mind if they get released. They'll vindicate him. There's a constitutional crisis. We we talked to Jim and John about that constitutional crisis. What if the, the Supreme Court orders them turned over and Nixon doesn't turn them over? Ultimately, he would. And, and they also kind of muse about, you know, what if Nixon or if Trump was in the same situation? Of course, there are no tapes of, of the Trump White House um, that we know of and be very unlikely, obviously, because of this exact situation that happened to Richard Nixon. Well, if Trump, Trump today in the same situation would say, come get the tapes, I got the army, you got the marshals. <laughs> so, or he might have walked out into the Rose Garden and burned them. And, and had, the, had the bonfire. Yeah. The tapes are ordered turned over. Investigators begin pouring through them, and it changes the, the public perception. People start hearing these tapes. They hear their president contributing to an obstruction of justice. We talked to Jim, you know, about what Nixon was doing, what the obstruction of justice, you know, he, he didn't order the break-in at the Watergate, but he certainly covered it up. And just days after these tapes are released, and we'll play you that clip, Richard Nixon, on August 8th, 1974, resigns the office of the presidency. Vice President Gerald Ford will take over, and he becomes the first president to resign. He would have been impeached almost for surely, but he decides to leave. Well, he, he first of all, he tries to shut it down with the, the so-called smoking gun tape six days after the break-in where he, Haldeman is told to tell the CIA to tell the FBI to just shut it down. So that's the that's one of the big things he does. He knows the, that the burglars are being paid hush money. There's an August 172 tape that nobody had found until John did his work in which Nixon said that's what's the money that that is what the money's for. He knows it. He knows that's going on. And then he dangles pardons all the way through. Actually, Nixon believes that the, uh, the, the defense fund is perfect. He thinks it's been set up, as he suggested, uh, through his friend Bibi Rebozo and the Cuban community, and it's called the Cuban Defense Fund. And he thinks it's perfectly legal, and he wants it made public. Uh, and if they'd done that, they'd have been very smart. But the problem, is, the problem is... Nobody that Nixon told to do that told anybody else. Uh, I didn't. When, he, when Nixon first ran that by me, I thought, what in the world is the man talking about? Did the Congress think was obstruction back during Nixon's time? And they're very similar things. It's trying to control an investigation um, for improper purposes. It's dangling pardons to keep people from cooperating fully. It's firing the investigators. Yeah. And it's this massive lying campaign. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad, to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. 
Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Richard Nixon resigns, there are a number of reforms that, that are Watergate-inspired. Again, as John said, it, it didn't have as lasting an impact in, in so many areas as it should have. But certainly one way, in a way that we still feel today, is the way that the media and the public treated the president in the presidency. No longer was blind trust there for our public officials. We talked to John about Watergate's influence on the president, and Jim discusses and John discuss its influence on investigative journalism. Woodward and Bernstein, the Washington Post, and all these great journalists who helped to keep this story on the front page to expose Richard Nixon and his presidency in the Watergate scandal. That's still uh, one of the effects that, as it's waned with the changing uh, of media today, but how we've seen a little recent boom, thanks to President Trump. If Watergate has not had a lasting impact, with a couple exceptions, uh, the first being media coverage of the presidency, Pre-Watergate, presidents were generally assumed to be doing the right thing. They were given the benefit of the doubt. Post-Watergate, they're pretty much assumed guilty until they prove themselves innocent. Uh, Let me give you a specific example. Um, When Eisenhower said that the U-2 plane shot down over Russia was a weather plane, press had no problem. They accepted it. Uh, when Gary Powers was rolled out, uh, he mumbled a few other explanations, but he, was, he wasn't doubted and it did not affect his credibility at all. To, you know, today, no president would be given that, uh, that benefit of the doubt. Well, I mean, investigative journalism was at its high point during Watergate, and a lot of the pressure now on newspapers um, has resulted in there's some institutions that are doing some great work but not as many as there were back then. And um, so that kind of waned in, I mean, it's come back a little bit with the, New, I would say, wouldn't you, John, with the New York Times and the Washington Post? There is real journalism today again because of Trump. Uh, it's not only the lead newspapers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, when you get off of the editorial page, they actually are journalists, uh, real journalists. But magazines like The Atlantic, uh, some on-site projects are fairly good. There are some investigative, well-funded blogs and what have you. But by and large, uh, I can't say that there has been a resurgence of investigative journalism in this era. Uh, There is some good journalism, but it's not widespread. One thing that got John Dean to to decide to, to turn and testify and tell the truth about the Watergate cover-up was they kept asking him to write this this Dean report, the one that we talked about earlier that Nixon said, well, you know, I don't need to appoint a special counsel. My uh, White House counsel has already done an, a thorough investigation. And they keep asking him, you got to read this report and you got to backdate it. Uh, something that, you know, would clearly be, a, you know, a falsity and an obstruction of justice situation. Um, but also, we want to talk about you know the Mueller report and the and the Trump Gate and Russia Gate situation. This Dean report is is a real example of something. With Don McGahn, who's the president's counsel, President Trump's counsel, uh, he seemed to know a lot about Watergate. 
he seemed to understand the historical significance of what they were involved in and what President Nixon and John Dean, his counterpart, some 40 years earlier, was involved with. There is no Dean report written, and he's asked about doing it multiple times. And then when, when you get into the spring of 1973, uh, the pressure increases to write this bogus report, and he will not do it. And we compare that to, to bridge this into the Mueller situation. One of the things that Mueller found was that Don McGahn, he believes, was asked by President Trump uh, to make up a report that he had, he had not been instructed to fire the special counsel. And McGahn refused to do that, uh, knowing this history of Watergate, which he seemed to be familiar with, uh, and knowing that that would put him in an obstruction situation. If you read the Mueller report, you'll see that Don McGahn seems to have known a lot about Watergate and about John's stuff. And um, he's one of the guys that gets in and interdicts a lot of the things that are about to happen. Uh, and he expressly says, I don't want to be involved in a Saturday Night Massacre or those sorts of things. So these are really important lessons to learn for all lawyers, but it also seems that Don McGahn was one of them. Who any reaction to John Dean's testimony, Mr. President? Mr. President, is there any reaction to John Dean's testimony today? Have you been watching it? Look, John Dean's been a loser for many years, so I've been watching him on one of the networks that is not exactly Trump-oriented, and I guess they paid him a lot of money over the years. Now, John's been a loser for a long time. We know that. I think he was disbarred, and he went to prison. Other than that, he's doing a great job. John Dean testified this summer before the House Judiciary Committee. That clip you just heard of our president calling John Dean a loser. Uh, I had to ask John about that. What's it feel like to have the president of the United States call you a loser? Given the presidents, I'm delighted to be on the enemies list of two presidents. Uh, I've now made my second, and I couldn't be happier to be there. He actually, I, I don't know, I think one was a tweet, the other he told somebody who reported it in Fire and Fury. Uh, that's where he called me a rat. Yeah. Uh, he's, I think he's done that a couple a times couple too. Times, yeah. So that's all fine by me, uh, <laughs> given the source. It does, it, it, in fact, it would, it would be awkward uh, had he not noticed uh, that I'm not one of his fans. June 10th, 2019, John Dean testified before the House Judiciary Committee about Watergate and its impact on the Mueller report. And what John really noticed, this old committee that he used to be the, the chief counsel of, was how things in Washington had changed and how things have become so polarized. You can hear it in the questions from the Republicans and then the, the questions from the Democrats. Nothing is getting done in Washington. It's one of my biggest frustrations. It's been that way for quite a while. But we play for you a couple of clips. First clip we play, John going back and forth with Jim Jordan, the conservative Trump-defending congressman from right here in uh, West Central Ohio. Well, I'd been counsel of that committee, so I had been in that hearing room during some rather hot and, and uh, very partisan times, relatively. Uh, during the Civil Rights Bill, we did things like amend the 64 Civil Rights Bill, did the 65 Civil Rights Voting Act, did the 25th Amendment, did 18-year-old vote. And there were some hot arguments around that. But what's the, 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 the polarization and politicalization today is pretty classless. It's, it's, uh, it's mud fighting is what it is. Uh, a guy like Jim Jordan 
could not cut it with these guys in past history. Uh, he just has no stature whatsoever. So I'm, I'm pretty disappointed when I'm sitting there at the caliber of the questions, which I think this is pretty weak stuff. The gentleman from uh, Ohio, Mr. Jordan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. At a memorial event for David Hamburg, Speaker Pelosi and I had a chance to discuss impeachment. Mr. Dean, who wrote that? I did. 19, uh, excuse me, one month ago, May 11th, 2019. Haven't we been too long in not giving Trump a meaningful moniker? Should it be deranged Don, deadbeat Don, demagogue Don? Thoughts, please, comments. Mr. Dean, who wrote that? I assume that was mine. It was yours. 19 days ago, May 22nd, 2019, there was this. We are witnessing Trump's massive cover-up of his criminal behavior as POTUS. He's incapable of accomplishing anything. Mr. Dean, you know who wrote that? I suspect that was me again. It was you. I want to focus on that last sentence. As POTUS, as President of the United States, he, Donald Trump, is incapable of accomplishing anything. So I'm just wondering, what were you thinking about when you said he's incapable of accomplishing anything? Uh, Mr. Jordan, I think that... Uh, under the parliamentary rules of the House, uh, I'm refrained from addressing a full answer to your question. You, you, weren't, you, weren't, refrained, uh, you weren't refrained in your tweets and your comments and the things my you tweet, wrote. My tweets are not subject to the parliamentary. They are subject belief. to state of mind and the perspective you bring to this hearing, and I think the American people understand. Let me ask you this then. The first announced witness of the 116th Congress was Michael Cohen, a guy who sits in prison today for lying to Congress. Today, Chairman Nadler brings in front of the Judiciary Committee a guy to talk about obstruction of justice who went to prison in 1974 for obstructing justice. I did not go to prison. Okay. You pled guilty to obstruction of justice. I'm glad you got to stay out of prison then, I guess. Since the gentleman from Ohio cast dispersions on the, on the witness, I would remind everyone that uh, after the after Mr. No, I didn't, Mr. Chairman. I read his statements. I did not cast dispersions. I read his statements. Very well. Since I believe the gentleman cast aspersions... You're wrong. Fine. Since I believe the gentleman cast aspersions on the character and truthfulness of the witness, I would remind everyone that after exhaustive testimony in 1973, when the tapes were revealed, it was revealed that everything that, that Mr. Dean said was correct and truthful. The, the next witness... Mr. Next Chairman, Mr. Chairman, if I could... The gentleman from Georgia is recognized. Uh, and uh, with a couple of them, I just said, well, that's right, you weren't born during Watergate, so you don't know about these things. And I... Uh, I Gates, I think. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so it was, it, it was uh, not an uncomfortable situation for me. Uh, I knew I, what, going in what I was, was going to happen. Uh, that's the way these guys operate. I watched Hillary for 11 hours take it. I only had to take it for four, <laughs> you know. Mr. Dean, how many American presidents have you accused of being Richard Nixon? <laughs> I actually wrote a book about Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney with the title, Worse Than Watergate. So, 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 it, so it's, it's sort of become a cottage. Did you make money on that book? It was a very successful book, How much yes. money did you make on it? I'm sorry, I don't have any idea. More than a million bucks? No. More than half a million bucks? <laughs> I said I don't have any idea. How many do you make from CNN? I don't really know exactly. I, I think I'm going to object to, the, to, to 
Wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Mr. Dean has made a cottage industry out of accusing presidents of acting like Richard Nixon. I would like to know how much money he makes based on making these accusations and exploiting them for his own economic can, benefit. Uh, Mr. Mr. Gates, uh, uh, Mr. Gates, I appreciate you were uh, not born at the time this all happened. Um, you guys need to get your act together and figure out if you're going to open an impeachment inquiry or not, because this is a straight-up fiction. I yield back. Gentlemen, his time has expired. The witness may answer the question. Uh, that was a speech. I don't believe I can respond to it. It's not sufficient time. <laughs> <laughs>
gate following Watergate, and it was called Winegate, and it was in France. And that's when the term was picked up by Bill Sapphire, who'd been a Nixon speechwriter. It was a, apparently it was over some Bordeaux wine that had been uh, mislabeled yeah. uh, in France, and and Bill saw this, and so he starts putting the suffix on every scandal, and it catches on. Uh, and what Bill is doing is trying to lessen the Trivialize impact it, yeah. of Watergate and trivialize Watergate uh, by putting this suffix on. And it's been very effective. Uh, Jimmy Bill, Carter's brother, Billy Gate. Yeah, <laughs> Billy Gate. So been, you know, it, it's gotten to silly gate is where it really is. <laughs> People still are conflicted about John Dean. The president called him a rat and a loser. But other people defend him as you know a hero, someone a whistleblower, someone who stood up and you know spoke truth to power, and exposed a corrupt presidency, and changed government forever. You know, we asked Jim just to reflect on on well, how history will remember John Dean. One, you know, the Ohio v. the world. On our side, we do think of him as an American hero. John pled guilty to charges. In this case, he he did do time not in federal prison or anything like that, but definitely spent time um, in a facility, you know, with with other Watergate witnesses when he's getting ready for some of these trials and, and hearings and such. And John was disbarred, lost his law license for the rest of his life. You know, John paid his debt to society. And he's someone that we think, you know, yeah, he was involved. He was centrally involved in the cover-up. But people definitely deserve a second chance, especially when they redeem themselves the way that John Dean did. It's funny because um, John has still to this day a, a, a group of people who really um, are still angry with him and people like Roger Stone still uh, will follow him around the country and show up at book festivals and confront him. And, uh, you know, these there's, there's a group of people who feel that way about him. And there's a group of people back at the time who truly saw him as American hero for what he did. The problem is that today we're so far away from it that he you know he's more seen in myth I think in most people's he's either this or he's that and nobody I think quite understands without really going into it and without looking at all these tapes what it took for this young guy who is the youngest guy in the room I keep pointing out to break with everybody because everybody said well he was doing that just to protect himself and the answer is he could have done exactly what everybody else did which was to continue to hide behind the presidency and that's a lot better territory to stand behind, you know, uh, of a likely outcome. So when he did this, it really was his belief that it had to stop. And um, there could have been a lot of other things he could have done, but that's what he did. And, you know, it just took tremendous courage to do that. And uh, he has that. His lawyer, too, who he got was just a tremendous guy, Charlie Schaffer. So that's... I mean, that's the way I think history will see it over time. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading. Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon 
So many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I like reading. Our book recommendation is John Dean's The Nixon Defense. What He Knew and When He Knew It. Uh, 2014 Penguin Books. You can get it on Amazon, all over the internet. Great book. But it is the official, what I consider the final word on Watergate. John, and we'll talk to him about it, but basically poured through all of the tapes and created a complete record of what the Nixon White House knew, what the president knew. He listened to every conversation. uh, And he writes it out. And the book is like uh, in conversation form. It's not like a transcript. Um, and it is really interesting. It's, it's work that no one else had been able to do. And John did it with his book, The Nixon Defense, What He Knew and When He Knew It. Also, you got to check out his book, Blind Ambition, the one that he wrote right after the scandal, uh, with everything still fresh in his mind, everything that he's going through, really, which will be, I, I think, a huge basis for the movie about John Dean that's coming out, starring Chris Pine as John Dean. Um, but we talked to John just about writing the Nixon defense and how long and difficult of a process that must have been. It's a book that if I knew what I was in advance, what I was getting into, I would have never done the book. What happened is I thought I could write a very quick book going to select tapes that Nixon's defense, which was based on the claim he made that he knew nothing about Watergate until I told him about the cover-up Uh, Yes, he knew about the existence just from the media coverage, but he claimed he had no sort of inside knowledge as to what was really going on at the White House until I reported to him on March 21st. Well, I knew that was an outrageous lie, uh, and I thought I could selectively go in and cruise the tapes and and put the lie to rest and, and historically sort that out. I realized when I started transcribing one tape, I needed to do the tape that preceded it, then the one that followed it. To make a long story short, I found that none of the, there was really no catalog of the Watergate conversations. So the first thing I had to do was catalog them all, which was very difficult at that time. So I manually went through and collected all of the Watergate segments of all the tapes. And it turned out there were roughly not roughly, there are just one or two, depending on how you count it, a thousand Watergate conversations. And maybe a hundred had been transcribed in one form, some uh, not well at all, some were done by FBI secretaries where they didn't even know who was speaking. So it was a massive job. Uh, I hired a, or built a team of grad students I was fortunate to find a woman who was a former legal secretary who was getting her PhD in archival science. And she kind of took charge of everybody that was doing the, uh, uh, the transcribing. California. Uh, this was out in California, yes. And it took four and a half years wow. um, to do the process. I, the way I set it up is I wanted them in front of me because I found it better after I transcribed a bunch of them to see how the process worked and understood it, I realized that having uh, Charity and the team that she'd put together, uh, that, that have them well in front of me 
and then I would go follow them and correct the tapes. This is where the CLE program came from. I'm waiting for them to get in front of me, and I'm talking to Jim and realizing there's something we can do with these tapes, like play them for lawyers selectively, and they can draw lessons out of these tapes to prevent them from making the kind of mistakes I made or any of the lawyers yeah. in this thing made. And so that's where this was born while I was working on that book. Everyone, thanks so much for joining us. That's going to do it for episode one, Ohio vs. Watergate. Was a, was a thrill to sit down with, with Jim and John Dean uh, and talk about this incredible event. And, and again, I want to thank them for, for spending the time to, to meet me here in, in Columbus and do that interview. Really, really interesting stuff. A couple quick house, uh, housekeeping issues. First of all, we're on Twitter at Ohio v. The World. Please add us. Uh, we're new to Twitter, so we're trying to add followers. Also, you can always email the show. People have great show ideas. Uh, you can buy T-shirts. Our Ohio v. The World T-shirts are for sale, $20 with free shipping. If you want to reach out to us, just email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Also, please rate and review the show. Give us that five-star rating. Scroll down on your phone while you're listening right now um, and hit that five-star. It gets us higher up in the list, um, even though we're so happy with you know how many thousands of you are listening to the show now. It helps more people find the show. If you like Ohio v. The World, scroll down, hit the five-star review. You don't even have to do a full review if you don't want, um, although that would be great. That really helps out the show, so rate and review us, whether that's on you know iTunes or on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, all those good ones, so... Thank you guys so much. Um, lastly, we are uh, doing Nightlight 614 again. Our nonprofit is the beneficiary on September 19th here in a couple of weeks. We pour beer and wine. All the volunteers get a free t-shirt. You get a free admittance to any uh, future Nightlight event. Super fun times down on the river here in downtown Columbus. And uh, we'd love to have you join us for that. So that's September 19th. If we still need one or two volunteers, you can always email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com if you can join us that evening. And all the money raised from those events and the t-shirt sales and, and some other stuff we do to raise funds, all that money is given away through our nonprofit to local uh, historical societies and the Ohio History Connection who we, who we serve with who do such a great job of sharing Ohio's stories um, and really match up with our mission so well. Uh, we will be back in two weeks. It'll be episode two. We're going to talk about another American hero. We're going to talk about John Glenn, the astronaut, the senator, the war hero. Uh, and we're going to talk uh, to a number of people who knew Senator Glenn and talk about really maybe one of the great American badasses of all time, a man who was the American century from the Great Depression uh, all the way you know through the, through the turn of the century, uh, his decades in, in the Senate, his multiple trips to space. I mean, the guy went back to space in his 70s he's just an incredible man, um, somebody I was lucky enough to meet in my life. But we'll sit down, it'll be episode two, John Glenn versus the world. So thanks again for listening. We'll see you guys for episode two. It's so great to be back. Um, by the time you hear this, I probably will have uh, become a father. My first child is on the way and, and it could happen any day as I record uh, episode one here. And props to Miss Ohio View the World as we have our first child and she's just been incredible throughout this entire process. Uh, I know she's going to make a great mom. And we're going to have another little historian running around here. So looking forward to all that and, and looking forward to bringing you guys more more great content. So 
rate and review us. Follow us on Instagram at Ohio V the World on Twitter. We need some followers there. Um, and we look forward to bringing you the next episode, John Glenn vs. the World. We'll see you soon. Up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Right.